Join my friends, Jeremy and Kelly, with their combined background in DNA, journalism, and law, as they share tales of injustice and intrigue with a focus on true crimes along the banks of the Mississippi. So sit back, grab a glass of sweet tea, and welcome to Riverside Homicide. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Riverside Homicide. Do you want to give you guys an apology before we even get started? You may hear some background noise in today's episode. We have a little bit of construction going on in the back, some bookshelves being built, and have some needy dogs that are won't leave us alone. So just we're just going to pretend that this is an ASMR true crime podcast episode. So hope you guys enjoy that. But let's get right into to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the tragic death of John Paul Wilty. John Paul was a hardworking family man, and he was gunned down in his own driveway just before 4 a.m. on March 23, 2018, in Olive Branch, Mississippi, which is just south of Memphis, Tennessee. Olive Branch has about 40,000 residents. It's, it's downtown. It's very small. It consists of antique stores, barbershops, bakeries. It's generally considered safer than Memphis, a good place to raise family. It's got that small town feel while still be, being really close to an actual big city. What else? Uh, tell us a little bit about John Paul, though. John Paul was born August 14th, 1967, on the Gulf Coast of Texas in Corpus Christi. His parents were named Ernest and Guadalupe Wilty. He grew up in a loving family, but his childhood experienced some difficulties. His father was a very depressed man, and unfortunately, uh, in 1976, at the age of 33, um, he took his life um, by suicide. And that was truly devastating to John Paul. He felt the need to step up and be the man of the house, um, but he did his best to maintain a positive attitude. He was, he was known to you know, make people laugh, to bring joy and humor to those around him. He went to West Jefferson High School, which was located just outside of New Orleans. And because of what I just mentioned about his uh, sense of humor, he was known as being the class clown. But he was also, I guess what you say, unlucky in love. He first met uh, a girl named Paula in high school. They got married, and they had twin sons. He dropped out of school because of that. He had to take care of his family, support them. Um, and he got a job as a pipe fitter. And meanwhile, he and his wife, Paula, became friends with a neighbor down the street named Denise. And he and Denise became romantically involved, and she became pregnant with a daughter named Ashley. Denise gave him an ultimatum, saying, leave your wife, Paula, or I'm going to raise this baby on my own. So he divorced Paula, and they shared custody of their three-year-old twins. And a year later, Denise and John Paul had a second daughter named Crystal. But that relationship, it didn't last because Denise was at home all the time with their two daughters and his twin boys while he was out working. They decided they'd be better off as friends than as a a couple. They had never married, so they didn't have to get divorced. Then he met another woman named Mary, and she was a little bit older than him, and they had a son together named John Paul Jr. So by 2001, John Paul had a total of five children, from three failed relationships, including two marriages. He relocated from Louisiana to Tennessee because of a job offer, and he was working as a maintenance mechanic at PMC Biogenics. This is a chemical plant that makes ingredients for different medicines. It's located in Memphis. 
He was promoted to a management job about a year before his death, and he really enjoyed working there. He loved working in that office. I had the privilege of getting to know a little bit more about John Paul um, by a conversation uh, with his daughter, Ashley. She lives in Louisiana, and she was able to tell me a lot about her dad's life. Even though her parents weren't together, they, you know, they had never married, he would make the effort every weekend to spend time with her um, until he relocated to Tennessee. She told me that he loved being Paw to his grandchildren. He would come visit them, sometimes it would be a surprise visit. He'd spoil them with donuts, take them skating. She said he was a very laid-back kind of guy, not violent. He never spanked her as a kid. Um, she said that she and her dad talked almost every day, sometimes for hours. And she said that John Paul loved action movies, especially Liam Neeson movies. And she said that when he would watch a comedy, that he had this this silent laugh, that he'd start laughing out loud, and then he'd go silent because he was running out of breath. And did so you was that kind of like mom? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the demo. Yeah, but it was that kind of laugh where it's almost asthmatic, I guess. Yeah, we call her asthma laugh. Checking to make. She said she had to check to make sure he was still alive, right? Right. Well, it sounds like he had a good laugh. He good was sense really of humor. Yeah, he was enjoying himself. And he had an eclectic taste in music, something that she uh, could relate to herself. He liked ACDC, Eminem, the Dixie Chicks. Sounds kind of like my my playlist, too. Um, He was uh, fascinated with outer space, the vastness of it, uh, the astronomy. And ultimately, he was just hopeful that one day he'd find a woman to spend the rest of his life with. Uh, John Paul, later on, he met his neighbor. She was a very petite woman, uh, only 5'4". Her name was Angela Carol Casey. She was working as a contractor. She rebuilt and redesigned homes. He met her in the spring of 2001 while he was working on his car. He cut himself. He had this really bad gash on his hand, and he's in pain. He looks up, and he sees Angela, and she comes over to help bandage his wounds. Sounds like a meet-cute, kind of like in a movie almost, Mm. when I think of. Um, She was 15 years younger than him. Um, Here's a little odd odd twist. Angela had first dated one of John Paul's twin sons, Chris. Now, Chris was closer in age to Angela. He was four years older than her, so they were closer in age than her and John Paul. Like John Paul, she had a troubled childhood. Her father left when she was young. She'd attended Gateway Christian High School. I think that's a, an online school. And she went a year and a half at Concord Institute where she graduated as a surgical tech. Interesting that she graduated as that because that isn't what she was later on Mm-mm. working as. Um, she was a single mother at that time, raising two boys. She'd married her first husband, Michael Casey, when she was just 15 years old. So wow. really young. Not sure when she divorced him. She had a son named Bradley at the age of 16. And then two years later, she had another son, Chris, by a different man. So by the age of 20, Angela had already been through two failed relationships. Now, John Paul and Angela had a daughter together in November of 2002. And then they got married a year later, August 21st, 2003, in Covington, Tennessee. You know, John Paul provided stability to Angela, and he appreciated that she was a very family-oriented person. But as you can imagine, their blended family resulted in a very chaotic household. It's a lot of kids, a lot of responsibilities. He had six biological children, and she had two sons, so I'm sure that that was a lot going on. And his mother passed away uh, in 2002, and he inherited $4,000. And at the time... Um, he and Angela were living in a trailer in Atoka, Tennessee, but they used that $4,000 inheritance to move to Olive Branch, Mississippi, where they did a lease to purchase um, 
arrangement on his property, on his home on Blocker Street. According to some court documents, this was the first house that Angela and John Paul had lived together in as a family. Uh, They began sprucing up the home, making it their own. And after being there a year, they decided, we want to purchase this home. We We just don't want to rent it anymore. But unfortunately, there were some sort of issues with the contract or the closing. They weren't able to purchase the home. There was a court document, and I thought it was interesting, so I'm just going to read to you, quote, um, Miss Wilty was devastated to hear this news. She was so distraught that she had to leave work immediately. Miss Wilty eventually had to seek psychiatric help for depression and was prescribed anxiety medication to help her cope. Seeing that they would never be able to purchase the home they love, the Wilties moved out of the Blocker Street house in March 2005. So this kind of gives a, a little insight into her mental state or that it affected her that deeply. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they ended up filing a lawsuit over this contract and it went to trial um, in November of 2009. And after a three day trial, they were awarded over $45,000. So in April, 2005, John Paul and Angela purchased a newly built home at 9897 Alexander's Ridge drive. You know, John Paul, they, he and his wife, they had a tumultuous relationship. On June 12, 2007, both of them were arrested in Olive Branch and charged with domestic violence, simple assault. He was 39 years old at the time, and she was 25. Yeah, so their marriage was rocky, to say the to least. Um, they were known to have disagreements and arguments um, over financial matters. Um, they had... Um, you know, infidelity that was accusations on both sides. So they had, you know, were just struggling. Uh, they were a struggling couple. Um, Ashley told me that Angela was the one that was in charge of the money. She wasn't working full time. John was, John Paul rather was the, the breadwinner, but there were some issues brewing. Uh, and that's kind of common, um, in a, like a, a relationship that's headed toward divorce. A lot right. of times financial stress and then you add infidelity on top of it so it was just a A bad combo bad combination so we're going to fast forward now to the day of the murder a neighbor called 911 just before dawn on the morning of march 23rd 2018 and i'm just going to quote what he said the caller said there's a dead man laying at the end of my driveway looks like he's been shot first responders found the man in a pool of blood with two gunshot wounds to the chest one on each side His feet were touching where the sidewalk was, and his arms were down at his side. His wallet was found on him, along with his driver's license, which identified him as 50-year-old John Paul Wilty. His address was listed as two doors down from where his body was found. His keys, they're at the end of the driveway. So, it's not a robbery. His wallet's there, his keys are there. This is something, something else. This is something personal. Police found John Paul's truck parked in his driveway with the door open. Officers located a black towel right below the truck, which is a little odd. The towel had six bullet holes in it. They also located a cartridge casing that they'd had to extract from inside the driver door. The police think that the shooter used the towel as a makeshift silencer to muffle the gunshot. It's interesting that the person who used that towel didn't take it with them. Right. Yeah, I agree. That's weird. Um, The police major, her name was Sherry Driver, Um, She said, it appeared to us whoever wanted this man dead chased him to his death. He did everything he could to keep from someone killing him. As I'm looking at his hands, it appeared he crawled to where he ultimately died. The skin was coming off his knuckles. So after learning that John Paul typically left early for work every morning between 4 and 4.30 in the morning, they assumed that he was ambushed as he was leaving for work. The police major, she asked our first responders, well, where's his wife? 
And they said, well, we haven't made yet contact with the house. Mm. So the officers knock on the door several times. They're trying to get a hold of, of John Paul's wife, Angela. When they tell her that he's been murdered, she did not seem surprised or emotional at all. She told police that she'd been asleep at the time in bed and, and she just didn't hear anything. She was then asked to come to the station. She arrives that morning at 9 a.m. And she tells police that she has no idea what happened. She said that she and John Paul had spent a quiet night at home before going to bed. She was very favorable in his her description of him. She, she said he was a really nice guy. She couldn't think of anybody who'd be upset with him. Very complimentary. But still, something was off to the detectives, again, because she was just so emotionless. She it was husband like, just died. Just died. She's talking, matter of fact. talking about this guy. She's a really nice guy. Well, I don't know what happened. And they, they just thought that was odd, which it is, it is odd. Well, before she leaves the police station, she allows the police to download the contents of her phone, including text messages and emails. And that's when the police get a glimpse into the relationship between uh, she and her husband. They learned that she was having long conversations and text messages with other men, including her boss. Uh, these text conversations indicated to the police that she and her boss were more than just friends. So they get her boss to come to the police station. He does so voluntarily. And he told the police that they did have an emotional bond. They were each other's confidants, but there was nothing physical between them. The morning that John Paul was killed, Angela didn't show up for work, understandably. Um, so her boss tried to call her. She didn't answer the phone. So he does something a little unusual. He drives to her house to check on her, but he sees all the police cars, and so he just turns around and leaves. The police found this to be a little bit odd that your boss would take it, you know, take the time to go to your to house. drive to your house. Right. And then, you know, you just leave after you see police cars. Why wouldn't you get out and ask what's going on? Right. So they ask him that he's like, well, it was blocked. And so I just went home. Um, they were able to check into his alibi. They found some video surveillance that confirmed he was at home at the time of the shooting. So her boss is cleared as a suspect. I mean, that is weird. That's my a, boss ain't coming to my house looking for <laughs> me. A very dedicated boss. Sorry, so, Julie. So that does make me think that, yeah, that their relationship was beyond just boss and employee, you know, mm -hmm. for him to go check on her like that. And he that. knew where she lived. Yeah. That's weird. It's also a little strange that she so willingly gave up her phone for them to look at everything. I don't know if she thought they wouldn't find anything or if she thought it looked suspicious if she said no. But, I mean, they found stuff immediately. Maybe she panicked. I don't know. I don't know. Um Police discovered that Angela was constantly in contact with her former stepfather, CSO Norville. I don't know if it's Norville or Nor Norvell. I'm not sure. So we're just going to go with CSO. We'll call him CSO throughout yeah. this because... His name is Charles Stephen, and we were never able to figure out what the O stood for. Right, but every court document... He goes by CSO. CSO so. so that's what we're going to call him. She was constantly complaining to CSO, her stepfather, her former stepfather, mm -hmm. not even her current stepfather, constantly complaining to him about her marriage to John Paul. Um, she, but However, she never mentioned any of that friction in her marriage to the police when she was interviewed. So they found it strange that she was complaining about it so much to CSO. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about him? Well, he was born in 1954, and he pretty much raised Angela and her sisters. He was their father figure. Um, but he had a criminal past, and this is where the case kind of takes a, a, a turn. Um, he had been charged in 1992 with second-degree murder. Now, he went and shot and killed the boyfriend of one of his daughters. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy was named Roger Dale Feltz. He was 46 years old. He went to Roger's back door, knocked, and Roger was on the phone when he answered the door. CSO told him, 
it's time to say goodbye. And he shot him three times with a pistol and left him there lying uh, face down in his living room floor. CSO left the scene and called the police and confessed right away. He said, come get me. And 30 minutes later, he was arrested. He was indicted in November of 1992. And in March of 1993, he entered a plea agreement and pled guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to serve for 61 years. So he's killed the boyfriend of one of his daughters. Because he thought that she was being mistreated. Mm -hmm. Would he do that again? That's the question. Uh, What else do we know about CSO? Um, When he was in prison in September of 2004, he basically uh, filed a a petition saying that he didn't want to be in jail for 61 years and wanted to be out. He he said that his, um, what do you say? He got an illegal sentence. Uh, But the criminal court of appeals, they uh, disagreed. Um, However, he did end up being paroled early for some reason, and he only served uh, just short of 20 years, and he was released on probation in August of 2014. I think that's amazing to be sentenced to 61 years and serve less than 20. Happens all the time. I don't know why he got out. Good behavior. I don't know what... And wow, like it sounds so, I don't know want to say cold-blooded, but I don't know what else to say. Like, just like, I, I shot this guy and he like had, he wasn't going to try to hide it. Mm-mm. He was just really calm, he goes home, ex- calls the police, turns himself in, waits. Like, mm-hmm. he was fine with it, apparently. So he did it once. He did it once. Would he did do he, it again? Would he do it again? Five days after John Paul's murder, the Olive Branch police interview him. They interview CSO and they ask him if he would do anything for his daughter. And he replied, up to a limit. I would really love to know, what is is your limit? Um, He told police that Angela was like a daughter to him and that he'd held her as a baby. They asked him how he felt about John Paul, and he told them he didn't like John Paul because of how he treated Angela. When police asked if he was involved or if he knew who was involved in the murder, they weren't able to get a clear answer for him. His alibi was that he was at home, but that his roommate was a deep sleeper and wouldn't be able to vouch for him. So he becomes a person of interest, potential suspect, but they don't have any evidence to charge him with anything at this point. Right. And the police, meanwhile, are going through the neighborhood canvassing, looking for uh, doorbell cameras to see if it captured the the murder. And they got excited because right across the street from the house was a doorbell camera. So they go and talk to the homeowner. And unfortunately, it's a fake camera, you know, just to kind of do, deter crime Um, the woman's son and put it there but it didn't do anything it didn't record anything Mm. so they were disappointed understandably you asked ashley how she learned about Mm. her father's Mm. death did angela contact her no which is that's i don't know it's really sad how she found out she got a call ashley got a call around 5 p.m which is a good 12 hours after the crime happened from a former neighbor named Teresa. Therese asked Ashley if she'd talked to her sister, Caitlin, and Ashley said no. Teresa told her, well, it's not my place to tell you what's going on, so you need to call your sister. And Caitlin, mind you, is the daughter bet- uh, between um, John, and John Paul, Paul and Angela. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ashley tries to call her sister. She try- I guess she wasn't able to reach her. She tries to call her dad. Finally, she Ashley speaks to a current neighbor, and that's how she found out about her dad's death, which is so, that's terrible. I, I hate that that's how she found mm-hmm. out. There was a funeral um, about two weeks after he was murdered. Once again, Ashley didn't hear about this funeral directly from Angela. Uh, she found about found out about it rather uh, from one of her dad's coworkers. 
Um, so Ashley and her husband, they drive from Louisiana to Olive Branch, Mississippi for the funeral. Originally, Angela told Ashley there wasn't going to be a funeral. But just about two hours before the funeral, Angela sent a, it's either a text or an email uh, to the kids letting them know that there was going to be a funeral in two hours. But what Angela didn't know was that Ashley was already in town because she knew about the funeral. Uh, but I guess tensions and suspicions were already high because Ashley had gone to the police station that day and an officer agreed to accompany her to the funeral. She was there with her husband, uh, one of her brothers. And sure enough, when they get to the funeral home, there was some like a, well, I don't want to say bodyguard, but a, it was a friend of Angela's. A friend of Angela's kind of being the gatekeeper. Mm. Uh, and she said, you're not welcome here. To their own father's funeral. Funeral. Angela did tell Ashley just before the funeral that she didn't want any drama, that it would be the last time that she got to see her husband above ground. But she didn't give any consideration to the children and how they felt. So the police officer tells the gatekeeper, no, Ashley and you know her siblings are going to be able to go to the funeral. And he went in with them and sat um, through the funeral. When the police spoke to John Paul's co-workers, they learned a little bit more about his difficult marriage with Angela. His co-worker, Kyle, told police that John Paul told him that Angela had had an affair. He told police that in 2015, the couple got into a big fight and that she cut John Paul on the leg with a box cutter. When the Memphis police were called, John Paul, surprisingly, you know, didn't rat her out, really. He told the police to take him instead because he said the kids needed her. So even though she'd cut him, mm. you know, he takes he takes the responsibility. As a result, he was put on probation, and they separated right after, and then John Paul moved in with his coworker Kyle for a while. Kyle told police that it wasn't the first time he'd heard about their volatile relationship, and he also told them about Michael Casey, who was Angela's ex-husband. John Paul apparently knew that Angela had asked her ex-husband to kill him. So plot thickens again. Yeah, bringing in another character. Yeah, so police, they interview uh, Michael Casey, Angela's ex-husband. She He's the one that she married when she was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, he came in voluntarily, and he confirmed that Angela had solicited him around 2014 or 2015 to kill John Paul. And she was even willing to pay him a couple of thousand dollars. He refused. He turned her down. But he also told the police that Angela later tried to poison John Paul. He said that she had crushed up some pills and that John Paul got sick, but not sick enough to go to the hospital. So now the police are aware that Angela has wanted John dead. So who would she count on to do this for her? Wow. On May 14th, 2018, the Chancery Court of DeSoto County declared Angela Wilty as the administrator of John Paul's estate. He he died without a will. So she was so, the one that's left in charge and... So she's trying yeah. to start getting money or right. things of that nature. So on August 31st, 2018, his five adult children, John Paul Jr., who goes by Polly, lives in Kentucky, Christopher, who lives in Florida, Joshua, who lives in Iowa, and then Ashley and Crystal of Louisiana, um, they filed a lawsuit against the life insurance company. Now, um, the the youngest daughter uh, is not of age to participate okay. in the lawsuit, so she's not in there with this, the adult children at this point. Um, the police, they had confirmed with John Paul's employer that in 2015, his life insurance policy listed all of his children and Angela as beneficiaries. However, just before his murder, 
or shortly before, um, somebody mysteriously went online and changed the beneficiaries to just Angela. Uh. And this was a $750,000 policy. So we talk about motive. That's Mm -hmm. a potential. Uh, Two days after the murder, Angela filed for a claim on that life insurance policy. So although there was a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to Angela, the case really didn't go anywhere until a few months later in October of 2018. She didn't wait any time to file that claim. I would think if you're truly in mourning and devastated, it's not the first thing that you're going to think of. Two days isn't very long. Mm -mm. Uh, In October of 2018, so this is six months after John Paul was shot, police were called uh, to a domestic disturbance between Angela Wilty and Bradley Casey, who was Angela's 20-year-old son. They'd gotten into a verbal verbal argument after Angela had taken his car away, and Bradley, he's ready to talk to the police. Bradley Casey came to the All Branch Police Station and said he'd been wanting to come to the police for a while. Something was bothering him. He stated that three weeks prior, his mother told him that CSO had killed John Paul and that she knew about it. He told police that his mother had asked him to go to CSO's house. She she wanted him to go and find the gun that was buried in a cat litter bucket in the backyard. And she wanted him to throw it in a pond behind the home. But allegedly he refused. And so that's what led to an argument. That's I think that's pretty terrible to involve your child mm-hmm. in this. But that's what she did, according to Bradley. So the bot... The police have to go get a search warrant, and they can't get it right away. It takes a couple of days. Um, and then they go to search CSO's house. Now, they had been to his house before, and it was a complete pigsty. Trash, junk everywhere. When they go this time, it was the, the yard had been cleaned. Mm. And they weren't able to right away find this cat litter box that Bradley had talked to about. Just when they're getting ready to leave, they said, let's look underneath this crawl space underneath the home. And there they find a yellow tidy cat litter box that had a 40 uh, caliber handgun and the ammunition, just as Bradley had described it to the police. And that ammunition matched the casings found at the murder scene. The blood spots that were found on the gun uh, the FBI did DNA analysis and confirmed that, that that blood belonged to John Paul Wilty. So the gun that was used to kill him that was found at CSO's house had John Paul's blood on it. Police, they did a firearms trace to find out who owned that gun. And it was the, belonged to a man named Gary, Gary Null. And so they find Gary, they talk to him. They said that Angela... Um, came to his store. He uh, worked at a tire store in South Haven, Mississippi in August of 2017. And get this, she traded a lawnmower for the gun. (laughs) It's not funny, but it's it's terrible. It's an odd transaction. Yeah, Uh, He was able to drive officers to her house to show he knew where she lived Mm -hmm. and where this transaction occurred. Now, later in court, Um, Angela claimed that she gave the gun to CSO in November of 2017 because her husband was on probation and and she wanted the gun out of the house. Okay. That is a super weird transaction, a weird trade. I'm wondering, like, did John Paul come home from work one day and like, where's our lawnmower? Yeah. What story story did she come up with? I don't know. That's odd. Very, very odd. Or maybe she bought a new one and said, oh, I got rid of the old one or something. I don't know. On October 23rd, 2018, CSO was booked and charged in Tennessee, that's where he lived, um, with being a convicted felon in possession of a handgun. And then on March 4th, 2019, this is 
Now, nearly a year after John Paul's death, Angela Wilty was charged with plotting John Paul's murder. When she was brought to the station, she refused to talk. Um, CSO, he's also charged with first-degree murder and then conspiracy to murder. On October 9th, 2019, Angela was indicted on the charges of conspiracy to commit murder and murder. Police and prosecutors argued that they discovered John Paul Wilty was planning on leaving his wife soon before his murder, which is interesting. CSO was also indicted the same day. Now, you'll go back to the probate case that they had named her as the administrator in April of 2020. Now that she's been arrested, uh, it's changed. It's updated. The administrator of John Paul's estate was changed to his son, John Paul Jr., um, in August, so about four months later, CSO was booked for conspiracy to commit murder for murder and because he was a fugitive from justice. Um, in a police interview, CSO told him that he was upset that John Paul was physically abusive to Angela. Which I don't know how many records there are of that. There was a record of an altercation between them, but she was the one that cut him with a box cutter. It's true. Um, so that's... But he's listening to what he's listening to what she's telling him, right? Mm -hmm. On um, June tenth, twenty twenty one, Angela enters a plea to first degree manslaughter, which is you know it's been reduced from murder to manslaughter, agreeing that she did kill John Paul Wilty. She's and this is to quote by continuously complaining to CSO about John Paul Wilty and supplying CSO with the means to kill. In a court affidavit dated, um, court affidavit dated, I'll say that a couple times fast, dated uh, May 28th, 2021, Angela says, again to quote, John Paul and I had an unhappy marriage. He started physically and mentally abusing me. He was unfaithful to me and committed adultery numerous times. I was having to pay for one of his girlfriend's medical bills each month. I complained to my former stepfather, CSO, of the bad treatment I was receiving from my husband. CSO has been like a father to me. She then says that on March 14, 2018, nine days before the murder, she received a text from CSO saying, he's telling her, remove this text after I'm through. I will not be having him show his beep bad word like this no more, just as soon as I get better and he won't be here. So back to Angela, she says, I knew by this text message that CSO meant to take care of John Paul. I knew after my husband was gunned down that it must have been CSO that did it. She says, I told my son Bradley that I thought CSO had killed John Paul, and I asked him to look over the property of CSO to see if he could find a weapon. I knew something like this would happen. I knew that CSO would not tolerate this mistreatment of me by John Paul. I accept responsibility for my role in the death of my husband, John Paul Wilty. Angela goes on to accept a plea deal for reduced charges if she testified against her, her former stepfather. She's then sentenced to 20 years in prison and is eligible for parole in September 2041 at the age of 59. However, CSO did not want a plea deal. He wanted to go to trial. I found a couple of things um, interesting about that. I mean, one, CSO did not want to go to trial. I mean, no, he sorry, did he, want I'm to sorry, go. he did want to go right. to trial, whereas she did not want to. Mm -hmm. So he wants to fight. And she didn't. And she didn't. Right. Um, and the other thing was, um, where's the, do, 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 uh, where she says in here, in her affidavit, I asked him to go look at the property, see if he could find a weapon, see if you can find it. Mm -hmm. Like, whereas Bradley's saying she told him exactly, exactly where, where to look. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, and she here she says, I accept responsibility. And we'll hear later on. That's going to change. Where she changes. Mm-hmm. Um, in November of 2021, the law firm that represented the five adult children and, and, and the sixth uh, daughter um, recovered $673,000 of that life insurance money um, and was able to reallocate that to the children and not to Angela. Good. Um, and then in May of 2022, CSO goes to trial. See, uh, Angela testified on behalf of the state, but she never admitted to helping him commit the murder. Um, and his defense attorney, Victoria Washington, says that he was set up by Angela. So this is his defense. The defense team tells the jury that they're trying to paint a picture of CSO. Oh, he's had a triple bypass. He's had back problems. He has to crawl to the bathroom some mornings. They say he's a family man. He's a jack of all trades. He's a he's a plumber. He loves to work on cars. He loves his grandchildren. He loves Angela. So they're really painting a different picture of him. His defense attorney says that CSO was at home the morning of the shooting, that his phone was at home, that his roommate would vouch for him being at home. Which is different than what he said before. Right, because he said his roommate was a heavy sleeper and couldn't Mm -hmm. vouch for him. The defense also told the jury that Bradley Casey, Angela's son, the one that, you know, told on her, that Bradley had moved in with CSO a few weeks after the murder. So presumably this is that time period before she tells him and he doesn't Mm -hmm. know. The defense attorney said that Bradley commonly cleaned the backyard at CSO's house, and that's where the gun was found. So they're trying to point the finger at Bradley. The defendant points at Bradley being involved. Defense attorney says that Angela bought Bradley a a car to keep him quiet. So I guess that's, okay, to hush him up. A car that he was then upset about with her, and that was when he went to the police. I'm not sure what about the car. She took it away from him. took it away from him, that's right. Um... His attorney says that Bradley went to see the murder weapon one day, went back, said it was gone, talked to the police twice, that Bradley had details about the murder that nobody else had, and that after talking to the police on October 5th, the murder weapon then magically appears at at a CSO's home where Bradley had just moved out because he'd failed to pay the rent. So she's saying Bradley's got all these details. He knows where the weapon is. How convenient. That's what the defense is saying. She also later points to a text conversation between Angela and another one of her sons, Dylan, where Dylan asks Angela, what's the plan, mom? And the defense attorney is saying that this is inferring that Dylan had knowledge or was involved somehow in, in this plan, I guess, with Bradley. So the defense attorney says, I submit to you by the close of this trial, it will be very clear that it's all set up. It will be even more clear. You may not know who should be sitting in that chair, but I do believe the facts will be abundantly clear that it should not be CSO. And so, I mean, to me, surprisingly, that defense worked. Um, CSO was acquitted by a jury, found not guilty. He would serve time for having a gun, but not for using it. So she created enough reasonable doubt to the jury where they acquitted him. Right. I mean, nobody saw him commit the crime. a lot of circumstantial evidence. The the only thing that tied him to the crime really was that the gun was found at his house. And and it's very suspicious that he had done a crime like this before, Mm -hmm. that he had killed a daughter's boyfriend. Um, Did they, but something that I'm just never able to find, you weren't able to find, is if they tested any gun for any gun residue, gunshot residue. The GSR. Yeah, I didn't see any reference to that. I don't know. They didn't talk to him until I think five days after the murder. Um, But they did talk to her. 
Um, I don't know if they did that testing. They tested or not. the gun for blood. They found John Paul's blood on it. Um, Once they but, found the gun, right? Well, I don't. I don't know how. I need to look that up. I don't really know a lot about gunshot residue. I don't know how, how long, long it, it stays on clothing or anything. But yeah. that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, if it ever gets appealed by somebody, right. I'm sure that would come out. Um, the home where John Paul was murdered, um, it eventually goes into foreclosure. It's sold uh, at an auction in, on December 1st, 2022. Now, after the murder, um, their daughter, um, Caitlin, she, or at the time of the murder, she was 15 years old. And this part irritates me. When I talked to Ashley, she told me that um, Caitlin went through bullying at mm. school. People were making fun of her about her parents' situation um, just truly cruel. Right, and, like she could do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, she, she's lost her father and her mother's in prison. She suffered the most out of all this, and yet, you know, they were just tormenting her. Right. So that, that was sad. But happily, she's doing well now. In fact, Ashley says that Caitlin, Caitlin is doing amazing. Uh, she's almost finished with cosmetology school. Um, she went a period of about four years without speaking to her family. I guess maybe some awkward tensions but she's now reconnected with her siblings she's actually even thinking about moving to louisiana to be closer to uh, some of her sisters and that's where her dad's family Mm. is some of the extended family Uh, she does speak to her mom angela about once a month and she's even gone to visit her once in prison this next part is kind of also shows you what kind of person angela is angela has asked caitlin not to get married or to have any kids until she's released from prison. In 2041. Mm-hmm. Angela wow. has given Caitlin's phone number to other people in jail who are about to leave so they can go check on her. Mm. And this has happened so much that Caitlin's had to change her phone number at least twice because of this. Yeah, it's kind of scary. And who, who else did she give the phone number to was CSO which is interesting. Yeah. The day that Caitlin turned 21, which is the day that she was legally eligible to receive the life insurance money, um, CSO calls her. Mm. And this really unnerves Caitlin and the rest of the family because they didn't know that he was not in jail. They thought he was in jail. Um, But it turns out they called the DA and the DA confirmed that he had been released in July of 2023. I think it's terrible that the police didn't update them enough to let them know. I thought that there was mechanisms for that. Yeah, I thought they would let them know. Also, it is super weird that Angela gave CSO her number because that means they're still she's still talking? communicating. I guess there's not bad blood between the two of them. I don't know. You would think that there would you be. You must really love her. I, yeah, he must. I don't, I don't know. It's a confusing relationship. On but May- notice, remember that... Caitlin here is doing well. Right. 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 She's got her life in order. She's got an apartment. She's got a job. She's going to school. She's doing good. According to her sister Ashley, she's doing good. Right. So keep that in mind. On May 5th, 2023, Angela files a handwritten pro se. A pro se means she's not represented by an attorney. So she files this document to request reconsideration of sentence. And she says... Your Honorable Judge Chatham, Chatham, I'm not sure, Senior, my name is Angela Wilty. I was sentenced in your Honorable Court on August 17th, 2022, when I received a 20-year sentence. I'm asking for a reconsideration, and I will have my fines paid 90 days upon my release. Since the start of this case, my daughter has been in a bad mental state since she lost her father, 
and now has lost her mother due to me being in prison. She's going down the wrong path, and I fear that I'm going to lose her. I feel that I've been railroaded by my attorney after paying him $130,000 because he told me that if I did not accept this plea deal and took this case to trial, he would make sure that I got life. This is the first time I've ever been in trouble, especially of this nature. I'm begging you to consider this consideration for my family's sake. I firmly believe that the DA threw the book at me and gave me the max sentence. Through all of this, I have maintained my innocence. Very truly yours, Angela Wilty. Wow. Uh, through all of this, I have maintained my innocence. That's the exact opposite of what she said in her affidavit where she said, I res- she says, I take responsibility for my part in my husband's murder. Yeah. Uh, and here she's saying that Caitlin's going down a, a, da- path. a path and that she's worried about her and she needs to get out of prison so she can help take care of her. Right. So. Hmm. Well, a little over a month later, uh, the court rules on her petition and denies it. Basically, they tell her. They don't have the authority to reduce her sentence. That's up to the parole board. Okay. Uh, CSO, meanwhile, it's in, in August of 2023. He's arrested um, for possession of a weapon. I don't know if it's what that's related to exactly, but he only stayed in jail for 19 days. And um, there was something that Ashley told you about a, a, a memory. What, tell, what did she yeah, say? Yeah, she said she remembers being in the car with Angela in 2016. And they were just listening to music, and the song Better Dig 2 came on. Um, that's the song by the band Perry, country song. And uh, she told Ashley, if your dad cheats, that will be him. I could play a little excerpt of, like, yeah, there's one gotta... part that I think is kind of telling. Hold on, this is a little excerpt from the song. So it's about, you know, a woman getting her vengeance on a man that's done her wrong, basically. Yep. And remember, John Paul had made it known that he was going to leave Angela. He was just waiting for Caitlin to be of age to finish school. And Angela told Ashley that day in the car and at other times how much John Paul needs her. So it sounded like a... The relationship, you know, with there was some obsession, possession, I don't really know how to describe it, but definitely odd considering they both were accused of having extramarital affairs. Right. And she said that about that song that if your dad cheats, that's going to be him. So mm-hmm. that he, he'll have that same fate then, in other words. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, but final thoughts. Who do you think did it? Who do you think pulled the trigger? Do you think it was Angela? Do you think it was CSO? I think it was Bradley? I think it was CSO. It, to me, because CSO had done it before, it seems logical that he would have done it again. The gun was found at his house, but it, it is circumstantial. Right. Um, I my, mean, my, yeah. my gut tells me it, 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 that he's involved. His defense did a good job in presenting an alternate theory. Yeah. When, when, so this case was featured recently on a, a Snapped tv episode and when they said cso was acquitted i was like how in the world right but then when i read the the court documents and saw they gave a plausible another plausible theory they did enough right. like if i was in that jury i would probably like hmm well i'm not convinced that there wasn't a possibility that someone else was involved because there was no physical evidence to tie right in. you have to be convinced was it convinced beyond a doubt reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. and so they'd planted reasonable doubt yeah yeah i don't know if he did it 
or not for sure, but that's my gut tells me he's involved. Right. I mean, she definitely was involved and yes. should be. I think she's just changing her tune now. Mm-hmm. But she admitted it in her affidavit. I think that, I mean, you take that plea deal. She's worried. She didn't want to she took to trial. the plea deal immediately, they said. Like, mm. it, she didn't, it wasn't like a bunch of negotiations. It was, she accepted responsibility. Yeah. So, very, very odd. It is interesting that he, wa- like you said, he wanted to go to trial. He wanted you, to defend himself. You, and so, like, with the first case where he shot the other daughter. He admitted it. He admitted it right away. Yeah. I did it. Oh, I didn't think about that. Man, well, that does plant a little doubt in my head. Because he he's not the type to lie. It sounds like he admitted the other murder, mm-hmm. but he Come didn't get me. to this one. Mm-hmm. Well, that is interesting. That's, I, I can, I, I, I mean, I my gut tells me that he did it. But I can see. I mean, they, remember his I defense how, attorneys. Yeah. He's a frail old man. He right. can barely walk. This man was John Paul was chased down. Yeah, but I still think he was involved. I still think he was involved too. But I I do see how the defense was able to place doubt yeah. in the jurors' mind. Mm-hmm. So he, the defense attorney did, did a pretty a good, good job. did his job. Um, I do want to thank um, on behalf of you and I, uh, Ashley, uh, his daughter. Um, she spent like an, over an hour talking to me the other day and shared her dad's story with, with me. And, and I really appreciate that. She wants people to remember her dad for more than just his death. Right. You know, he, his he, laugh, his sense of humor, yeah, the fact the, that he loved his grandkids, mm-hmm. his, yeah. his, uh, taste in movies and music. Yeah. And, you know, just the fact that he was a, a good person. Yeah. And even, even his friends, you know, commented that, well, even Angela did say what a nice man he was. That's remember? true. That's true. So there's a lot of things that don't add up in this story, but I do think, uh, Ashley for being willing to let us tell her dad's story. Um, we also just, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. <laughs> well, let oh. me just knock down that cup real quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost done. We're going to wrap up. We did say this was going to be an ASMR episode. So there you go. Um, we want to give a shout out to some of our loyal listeners. I think in one of our previous episodes, we were asking, you know, a lot of people have fan names like Taylor Swift has Swifties and stuff. So mm-hmm. what are our fan names going to be called? So a friend of ours suggested that they should be called Showboats. Because we're Riverside, we're Riverside Homicide. If you are familiar with Memphis, we do have uh, riverboats, riverboats, big riverboats yeah. that go up and down the Mississippi River. So, showboats li- is is kind of I like it. Yeah. So here's a shout out to some, some of, of our, our, sh- our showboats. showboats. Um, Serena L from, from Serena <laughs> from South Haven, Mississippi. Jasmine V from Olive Branch, Mississippi. She's the one who recommended this case. We got Whitney R from Salt Lake City. Charity W from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And Eve M from New Orleans, Louisiana. We're grateful for you guys. Yeah, these are some folks that have, you know, just been supporting us. They've uh, commented, supported mm-hmm. us on social media, been telling friends about our podcast. And so we appreciate the support. Yeah, we're grateful to you guys. We thank you for all your loyal support. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you happen to listen. We're not really super, super active on social media. We apologize, but please follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Riverside Homicide Podcast. The more you do engage with us there, the more motivated we are to to post things. Yes, we'll 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 try to do better there. But in the meantime, we thank you for listening to Riverside Homicide. We've got some other exciting cases that we're working on, uh, some unsolved cases that we're actually investigating. Uh, So it might be a while before we get those episodes out because there's a lot of work to do. Um, But we're excited about that. So until next time, thank you for listening to Riverside Homicide.